Hello, welcome to the Studio Roundtable today, where we'll be discussing capitalising on the digital imperative. I'm really pleased to be joined by some fantastic experts with us today. Um, we have, um, starting with Dr. Joe Perez, he's Senior Systems Analyst at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services and Chief Technology Officer for Solontech Corporation. We then have um, Mariah Goodamsetti. He is um, Vice President of Digital Technology Products at Assurant. We are also pleased to be joined by Lauren Walker, Managing Director at Accenture Interactive and heading up the Intelligence Practice um, at um, European Unit there for Accenture Interactive. We're pleased to be welcome, welcoming also Diana Asher. She is um, leading the Information Studies Research Lab at UCLA and is also um, head of research at the Enterprise Data Management Council. We also have Doug Laney here today. He is Data and Analytics Innovation Fellow at West Monroe Partners and is also Professor of Infonomics at the University of Illinois. And finally, we have Russ Lewis. He's a uh, job title is The Agilizer, which he will hopefully explain to us a bit more is um, about uh, agile transformation and he works for Storm Consulting. So thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me today um, to discuss uh, capitalizing on the digital imperative. Um, I'd like to pose a few questions to you and I'm sure we'll, we'll hopefully have a, a free flowing discussion. Um, but I will come to Russ first, if I may, um, to pose the same question to all of you in turn, but to Russ first. Um, Talking about data quality, um, thinking about the data imperative, um, what, what do you think satisfaction levels are for data quality in business, um, for the clients you see, for your own business? And that's in terms of how it's collected. And if not, if you're not satisfied, what should, what should change? Look, I work with a lot of very, very large traditional organisations. They've been doing stuff for a long time. It works. So it's natural that they keep on doing the stuff that works. They've built wealth. Uh, according to that way of being and the ways that we're trying to introduce now are more empirical they're much more about measurement and inspecting the measurements and then adapting from that so we're inviting leaders really to look more at measures rather than spoken word so instead of I'm going to such and such because I rely on them they're my trusted source I believe what they say we're saying, let's look, let's go to a dashboard and let all of us get together and look at some data and decide what we're going to do with that. So that's a shift. And yeah, there are problems. Some of the data that you would like to see is simply not there. So flow metrics, the amount and the, and the speed of, of value, the throughput of value going through delivery systems, it's just not there. And partly it's not there because people don't necessarily know what to look for or what to measure and they don't know what to do with that when it's in front of them. So there, there, there are questions to be asked and there is some little bits of learning to be done. My takeaway though is if everybody looks at the same data, so instead of a them and us situation, you know, management look at one thing, a workers, so forget that, decide what's important, let's all look at it together and then we can decide what we're going to do about it together and then you move in the same direction of travel. Thank you Russ and to you Doug I'll put the same question to you. Levels of satisfaction and what should change on data quality? 
the first part of the question is around whether organizations do a good job at collecting um, the at, and generating data. I think today many organizations do a good job of that. It's just that they don't really manage it like an like an asset, even though everyone talks about data as an as an asset. Um, I also think we're really not not measuring it as an asset. There are different ways that we measure other assets in the organization, whether they're financial assets or physical assets or, or human capital. Uh, the other the other challenge I think is that we use the term data quality kind of generally, um, and data quality isn't something that you can really measure. You can measure the constituent quality uh, components like accuracy, completeness, timeliness, integrity, subjectivity, granularity, um, and so forth. And, um, and I don't think that's something that a lot of organizations are particularly aware of. They think data quality is just accuracy or and don't really realize that there are you know, up to a dozen different components of data quality that can and should be measured and, and communicated. Um, and I also think organizations really aren't leveraging external data sufficiently. Um, still, a lot of companies are very focused on, on trend-based analytics rather than driver-based analytics, which would require you to harvest and collect external drivers of your of your business. So those are some thoughts on that topic. Brilliant. No, that's absolutely brilliant. building on Russ, Russ's um, comments as well. Thank you. And over to you, Diana. I agree with both Russ and Doug, and I would also add that data quality needs to be tied to values. So the values that your organization has should dictate what you're measuring. And what we're finding is that organizations that from bottom up and top down perspective are ensuring that their measures are aligned with their values, they tend to have a, an easier time to, to inculcate um, the drivers that that the organization wants to promote. And, you know, we're working on a project um, looking at data, return on investment in data at EDM Council. And it's really challenging to, to figure out which measures are the ones that matter. And I think that's what happens within a company that they really need to go back to those values and their, their founding principles. Um, in order to ensure that they're measuring what matters and incentivizing those things. Absolutely. I think all three of our, of our panelists have introduced some really interesting um, perspectives in terms of ways that we should measure data and, and understand the, the value of data. Um, any thoughts sparked from, from that for you, Lauren? Yes, um, to build and to even maybe um, throw some uh, wild angles <laughs> at the question. When I think of data quality, there's two things that come to mind, given essentially my career that's been across Equifax, IBM, Dentsu, and Interactive now. And in all of that, I've been very centered on consumer data. So kind of starting in my career at Equifax or a spin-out called ChoicePoint, it was all around what is the veracity? How closely can we get to an identity that is this person? And we know with 99% assurance that this is who this person is and all the associated attributes around that. And it was very interesting from a data aggregator perspective to say that quality now is advised from all these different touch points and all these different sources. And where we are now, especially because I've been spending my, my past, let's say, 10 years in marketing with the death of the cookie. Yes, I brought it into the conversation, right? The, the cookie is not really high quality data and it's very suspect. And marketeers want to measure the effectiveness of their spend 
in reaching actual people and not bots. So when you think about data quality in the marketing world, it's around how close can I get to an actual person who is on the other side that I cannot see because especially after COVID, we've gone so digital. So it's quite interesting for me to see how from precision marketing databases, you know, from the, the credit bureau side where you're buying lists of names, we're now going into a very interesting digital space to say, what is a valid addressable identity and what is the quality of that person I'm trying to reach? So that's the aspect to me that is just a huge area of debate, um, especially now that the cookies are going away and there's a realization that everyone is becoming a company that has all of our eyeballs on them. And whether we want to say who we are or not, whether we go through Chrome or we go through Android, the same thing, Google, Alphabet, or if we're going through um, Apple, it's a very interesting point around the quality of data and the quality of that interaction that marketing is trying to drive. But then equally to Russ, Diana, Doug's point, how are we actually measuring the success and the ROI based on did we get to that person or that segment? So that would be the the other, I guess, um, angle and lens I would bring to the data quality topic that's quite relevant in marketing. So Lauren, your, yours is very much a, a B2C lens, isn't it? Yeah. Because I'm, I, I'm thinking B2B. Right? That's why I thought I would throw it in because having, you know, my 10 years at IBM was very much around ETL and, you know, masking and, and getting an MDM. And then as I moved into marketing, I just said, wow, this is a totally different different phenomenon now of, of a lot of things that are really hard to understand. Because you deal with very big data as well. The numbers are, are huge. I was just going to jump in and say it, it leads really nicely off of Diana's point about aligning, you know, the date, the, the, the questions you're going to ask of the data to the value. It's often what you, the, the question, the why is almost as important as the, the quality of the data as well. So I can see everybody nodding. I think we definitely have to get um, Joe and, and, and Mariah here um, in on this one as well. So Mariah, to you, can I come to you and, and ask you what your thoughts are on this on data quality and its, its measures and standards? Absolutely great. Uh, there are certainly some great thoughts around the panel here. And I mean, there is no question about the organization collecting the data, the amount of data they're collecting and all. I think what is important is the quality of the data, right? How we are building the, the data science models and how we are actually segregating the data, how we are actually driving the insights from that data and are we providing the quality insights for the end users whoever is using our product, uh, which will trigger um, the data science models in collaboration with AI and ML uh, combination there. Uh, I work for a lot of different companies, Fortune 500, Fortune 300 companies, and also work for mid-scale companies. I worked on a SaaS product software as service, and we built in uh, omni-channel orchestration where the data can be fed into various different types of channels, like the bots and you know the chart agent, virtual agents, and combination. And how this the data science model and the quality of data is channeling across various channels. At the end of the day, how beneficial it's for the customers, how valuable insights we are actually providing it to them is critical. Um, so that's my perspective on in addition to what the panelists spoken so far. 
Absolutely. You've, you've brought in, into sharp focus the fact that um, the, the data usually has to be consumed by an end user. And I remember backdating myself to the times where I'd hear business people lament that their business intelligence systems were taking too long to produce the data insights. By the time they got them, um, they were out of date. Joe, Joe, over to you. Thank you for your patience. Love to hear you round up the um, thoughts on this on this particular area. Yes, ma'am. No problem at all. So um, I, I love the perspectives that have been brought here so far, and uh, I'm probably going to turn it on its side too, like uh, like Lauren did, uh, because you know the question wasn't really asked as a yes/no answer because I don't know that you can give a yes or no answer because to be honest, I would answer it if it were a, a yes/no, uh, something that's ambiguous. Okay, I would have to say yes and no all at the same time and yet not even be a liar. Okay, how's that for decisiveness? <laughs> but seriously, uh, I explain what I mean. Um, okay, I lead a team that handles the data warehouse for the Department of Health and Human Services in the state of North Carolina. And um, as a state government entity in the United States, we have very high standards to which we're compelled to adhere and not just compelled to which we want to adhere, you know, and, and desire to, you know. Um, and in fact, that there were meeting these standards and exceeding them, I'd say, yes, my team is doing a phenomenal job and they're known for having done so for a very long time. Okay, that's the yes part. Um, as for the no part, well, <laughs> I, I would have to ask myself, are we really doing enough in the realm of collecting data from our various business partners throughout the agency and what are we doing with it? And I would have to say no. You know, one of the biggest hallmarks of quality in any organization is its willingness to question the status quo, to constantly be on the lookout for better ways of doing things, of seeking greater efficiency with programs, processes, and, and procedures. Okay. One of the challenges that I see to implement this mentality, the ideal here, is getting past the existing silos that different parts of the organization can build up. All right, now, there isn't really anything intrinsically wrong with silos. It's just that when they don't want to share or be part of a cross-functional strategy, or they don't want to get past their natural bias of thinking that, oh, sharing, well, that's the same thing as giving up control. It's my data. You know, it's not that way. It's our data. All right, the other huge challenge, and I suppose maybe this is a little bit bigger, and that is one of overcoming a long-time reluctance to change in the way we do things. And yeah, I've been in state government for almost 30 years now, and you know what? <laughs> there is this stereotypical bureaucracy, the box that you stay in, you know, that makes everything appear to be moving, uh, I don't know, slower than a drive shaft in a stall Buick on a hot summer day. Okay, and that's pretty slow. All right. <laughs> and, and, and see, that's the mentality that squelches ideas, kills growth, stymies innovation and, and generally uh, halts forward mo motion in, dead in its tracks. All right. <laughs> so once we can get people to abandon those stereotypes and open their eyes to to the benefits of a more agile way of thinking like I'd like to see, then. Then we can get the needed cooperation, shift those paradigms, if implement those ideas, and move things in the right direction, just like Russ, Doug, Diana, 
Lauren and Mariah, Mariah want to do it. That's how I would do it. Wow, that's yeah. I, I I noticed Russ giving you a round of applause there. I would I definitely would do the same. I think you've you, rounded <laughs> off that um, area of discussion really really well. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned agility. You mentioned the need to move faster. But I think what our next question is trying to get you to think about what good looks like. I guess in that sense. So we've all talked about things. You've all talked about things that. I suppose from a data quality standpoint being done well and then maybe not being done so well or things that could be done better um, but when we think about things that can be done better um, in terms of case studies that are out there that are available for, for leaders like yourselves looking for successful uses of data but also I think ethical uses of data here as well because we've talked about sharing data we've talked about being able to ask questions of data more, come up with the answers of data more quickly um, I hear a lot um, to Lauren's point about zero party data what what are the the examples you're seeing out there of successful and ethical uses of data and and are these these um, examples um, sh proving that the data is accessible as we need it to be, as Joe mentioned there. I mean, I, I'll throw it open. Does anybody want to jump in specifically um, and tackle this one first? I'd love to, if that's okay. I, I, and I think, and I think this is predicated on a myth, right? I think this is the myth of business schools and case studies. I think what good looks like is the stuff that you don't hear about. It's not revolutionary change. It's not big stuff. What Joe's talking about is a call for very, very iterative, incremental, small, ordinary change. So we just start to do better data in better ways. And, and honestly, I think that's what we need to normalize. So the more senior you get in an organization, and look, I've been, I've been interim CTO, you know, you are, it is expected that you will do big things. And when you when you turn around and just start doing a lot of small things and then go and look at the difference that makes, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a transformation. That's people going, oh, wow, actually, we can all do this stuff. There is nothing. So I think it's really important that we move away from the, yeah, we've got to be like this kind of great thing over there that, you know, is exceptional and, and just go, this is very ordinary stuff that we can all do and all make better so that's for me is just bring it down and make it achievable i'll jump in since this has been a a passion of mine for a while and i agree with russ that um, use cases ought to be inspirational even if they're just iterative functionally specific uh, vocational they don't have to be big data enterprise yada yada kinds of solutions uh, to be inspirational or uh, for organizations. And so some years ago, um, our clients started asking, you know, what is big data? Then they started asking, what do we do with big data? So I started compiling these use cases on how organizations are using data and analytics in innovative ways. And the library grew from a dozen use cases to 50 to I now have six, six or 700 use cases. And and then clients and colleagues said, well, why don't you publish these? And so <laughs> as it turns out, my next book is going to be 101 use cases of how organizations are using data and analytics in innovative ways. It should be out in about a month or so. The book is called, I'll announce it here, is called uh, Data Juice, how organizations are squeezing you know, value from data. Um, but each of the stories is, you know, is inspirational. Almost all of them have a, 
a measurable value proposition for them. Um, some of them are quite pedestrian, but enough to inspire or, or perhaps shame <laughs> business leaders and IT executives into doing more with their data. And some of the stories are data for good kinds of examples where um, data is being used for the good of, of customers or society or uh, you know, ESG kinds of solutions um, or where there's a kind of a quid pro quo where it benefits multiple parties. Um, multiple stakeholders. And so, um, yeah, I think case studies are, are really important and um, should be used liberally within an organization to inspire or, like I said, shame folks into doing more with their data. You know, data is a, as what economists would call it, a non-rivalrous, non-depleting asset. And so we should be looking for more than just one way to use any given data asset. We should be using looking for multiple ways to leverage it to increase its, its return on, on asset value. I think if I if I can go next, you know, my my thought, especially as I got closer to the advertising model and, and the fact that a lot of us are um, reacting to perhaps a lot of movies, we've seen the great hack, we've seen the social dilemma, we've seen all sorts of things in terms of the ethical use of data and the fact that oftentimes our data is monetized in ways we don't really understand if we're not kind of data digital gurus. And so on that side, I think one of the things that's really important is we have a responsibility, I think, for those of us who understand data and you know how it's being monetized and some of those use cases, Doug, to make sure that our community, our governments, you know, our companies and the people that we work with really understand how does your data, how is it used by essentially a lot of the brands and companies that you work with and how do we collectively begin to understand you know, certain companies' models is essentially built on us giving up information on ourselves to get some sort of value exchange. And certain platforms give us more than others. But that's also something that's changed, I think, with COVID, where so many things were only accessible and digital. And then you start to think about who's writing the algorithms behind these mountains of data. And that's where I think it a lot of the time comes back to. It's not about, I think, men or women per se, because I think we've there's so many conferences and conversations I've had about women in STEM and, you know, my background's political science and Spanish and marketing. It's not data science, but I'm still in this, you know, in this space and I have a contribution to make. But the important thing here is it's about the diversity of people involved in the design of the model and then how that will be used in the business environment. So I think some of the things that you said, Joe, about, you know, the good and bad of data quality, I think the power of diverse teams in terms of the backgrounds people have come from math and science or anthropology and, you know, social science, that combination of teams looking at how you actually make sure you're ethically using data because you're not just seeing it as a one or a two that's going into a model. You're actually thinking of the human behind it. And again, it's my, my, focus tends to be very much consumer data or identity data, that would be the point I would make about this that that I really carry with me every single day and try to make sure people understand what's happening when their fingers touch a screen. <laughs> what's going on behind that? Absolutely. And are they okay with that value exchange? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if Joe or Diana want to jump in there. Diana, you were yeah. talking very much about this as well. Yes, data ethics is my bellwick. I'm so happy that people are talking about it now. Um, to echo what Lauren just said, every data asset represents a person. And there's an understanding that took place when that person seeded that data to that organization. 
And so again, I think that this goes back to values. If you want your your outcomes to reflect the values of your organization, you're going to remember about original consent and make sure that you're using people's data in ways that they would have anticipated. Um, you know, when you bring in someone and you ask them to innovate with data, you have to remember that you've made promises already about the data that you currently have and you want to make sure that, that those promises are upheld. Um, and again, having a good code of data ethics will solve a lot of these problems. You know, we I like to give this example of um, Amazon Prime when they came out with their zones for free delivery. And it just turned out that all of those zones happened to be rich white neighborhoods. And I actually think of this as a success story because as soon as it was pointed out to Amazon that their beta was only catering to rich white people, they pulled the plug on it, they readjusted their algorithm immediately, they saw that there was a problem. And they didn't hide it from anyone. They corrected the problem, and now they don't base it off of the same demographic markers. That this is a lesson to all organizations that you can have all the data in the world, but you need to do that gut check every time you're making the data decision to make sure that the outcomes are aligned with who you are as a company and who you represent yourself as, as a brand. Absolutely. I talk about using the data with empathy. Joe, you just had a round of applause there. I'll come to you um, last, Mariah, if that's okay, Joe. What, 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 would, what did you have to add here, please? So, yeah, uh, uh, applauding this because it's all about mission, vision, and goals. You know, what? Uh, uh, how are you portraying your organization? What is it that you're gathering? How are you doing it? Uh, what kind of a reflection is it on uh, the type of organization you are and um, uh, how are you going to be coming out? Um, one example, best example I can think of that, um, you know, that come to my mind, going old school here a little bit, predictive modeling for um, maintaining oil and, and gas supply. All right. You think about crude oil, gas industries, old school. They face significant issues with failures in their equipment a lot of times. And these failures often happen because... Um, some of their oil wells are inefficient or performing at an unacceptable level, for instance. Now, when these instances, in, industries adopt a successful strategy that advocates for preventative maintenance and they go and take it a step further with using data to achieve predictive maintenance, right, data driving the decisions, well, then the operators of the oil wells are going to be alerted, not only when there's a crucial shutdown that they need to do to keep something from breaking in the middle of the night or whatnot, whatnot but also when maintenance periods, periods come up. See, people who go this route, those are the ones that most often are going to tend to have a boost in their oil production and either a reduction or possibly even a, an elimination of further loss. All right, so here's how they do it. They get a data scientist or a bunch of them to apply various predictive maintenance strategies, for instance, using data with ML and AI, optimizing high-value machinery uh, for manufacturing and refining oil products. All right, they'll increase the number of sensors in their equipment, for instance, so that all the telemetry data that they're able to extract through those sensors um, will make use of that steady stream of historical data that they're getting or will have been getting 
to train whatever machine language model that they've set up. All right, those very same machine learning models will then be able to predict when, say, the machine parts are most likely to fail. And then they can proactively notify the people running those machines, you know, the operators I talked about, um, of whatever timely maintenance is needed, thus avoiding the oil loss that they would other otherwise have to endure were those measures not in place. See, it's all because some data scientist somewhere that was assigned to developing some kind of predictive modeling strategy that they'll end up using will help those companies avoid the hazards and at the same time more accurately predict failures, prompting the operators to take precautionary steps pre, uh, proactively. Um, see, that, to me, that's a type of case study that's both successful and ethical, okay? That is, it's successful in that it, uh, it achieves its objectives. Ethical in the sense that no laws were broken, uh, potential cat catastrophe has been averted, and any environmental concern gets, cons gets addressed before they even become an issue all because they paid attention to the data. And looking at those case studies as, say, a cautionary tale, as it were, um, will help so that people can see either there's glory in it or there's shame in it, the shame that Doug was talking about earlier. For me, what's really interesting about what Joe said is that shows that an organization has adapted. So the management has allowed that adaptation. They've supported that adaptation. They've changed, right? They, they've evolved and they said, this is going to be better for us. And they've now got data scientists, you know, at, at, at the front running. Uh, and we see this in, so in, in, in tech, we have, you know, the traditional companies and when we have the digital natives. And in a digital native company, you will typically have a data scientist on each team. There will be somebody there that talks from the data, from that perspective. Whereas in a traditional organization, you will essentially have somebody who's very highly paid and has an opinion. You know, and there's not much empiricism. So I think, Joe, you know, I think you've really highlighted there how, how an organization will adapt. You know, those are the sort of the, 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 the signals that it will give off to say, we're adapting to this new state of being. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing. If Just one more thing real quick. What you said, Russ, about adapting. If you intend to be adept, you have one or two choices. You must either adopt or adapt if you expect to be adept. you got to do it. Very good. I like that. Um, Mariah, coming, back, coming to you on this one. Thank you. Yes, yes. These are certainly great discussion points here. So I look at uh, the the ethical point of data is very important for the success of the organization of the they, the way they do the business and obviously it comes with uh, all of its compliance regulatory challenges based on the geographic location so i look at three perspectives here right there's a organization culture and what the vision of the organization mission of the organization what their value system is and how uh, whatever we build further down should be aligning with what those are and those should be idealistic enough to protect the, the data integrity and ethical practices around. Um, so that's from the organization perspective. And then you can look at the process perspective, right? Do we have the right tools to measure it and alert it when it's needed? And also, do we have like review boards, ethical committees and data governance uh, review boards and all that just to make sure that 
what we say is what we do and we are implementing part of it. And the last but not the least is the people and the skill aspect of it. And a lot of people already spoke about building the data science models, how ethical they are, what data we are collecting, how we can actually leverage, and is it aligning with the organization values, what we are trying to adapt, being an ideal organization when it comes to the ethics and business practices. Another element that goes along with these institutional review boards for data ethics is empowering people at any level in the organization to throw a flag if they have a concern without fear of repercussion for slowing down production. But when you're talking about all of the assumptions that people have about data, and when an idea comes to someone that this could cross an ethical line, this could create a situation that we weren't anticipating with the models, having that empowered um, workforce is instrumental. The point that Diana makes is um, a very good one in terms of the last couple of questions I'd like to ask you, and that is around how leaders can actually help evolve their teams to be more data literate, and also any piece of advice about data practice that you think any or everyone should know. So you can either choose to answer one or the other, but I'll come to come to you all in, in asking, you know, what is it we can do to help um, your teams, teams for of clients and businesses that you work for, or your own teams to be more data literate. Does anybody want to um, take that one first? I'd like to jump in if I may. Um, this is my passion because before I got into IT, I used to be an educator. So, uh, you know, I agree 100% that data literacy is something that needs to be addressed, definitely. You know, a recent Forbes and Tableau study found that only well, no, not only, 83% of leaders say they want their organizations to be data-led, but only 33% of the employees say that they are comfortable working with data, okay? That's quite a huge disconnect to me. See, gone are the days that we can say, oh, data literacy, well, that's only for data scientists and uh, all the other technical people too, right? We're not technical, so it doesn't matter. No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that attitude's not going to cut it anymore. That mentality is what either leads to data illiteracy or it proves that data illiteracy is already there. All right. But if it's an issue that's recognized by leadership and they're willing to admit the need in their organization, hey, that's a good start. All right. I'd say that they need to do a couple of things. Um, first, build on that momentum by knowing where their data comes from and how it's used. You know, um, a solid overarching view and understanding of both the landscape and the topography that's in front of them. See, it's easier to start making assessments and figuring out what the next steps are when you have a clear, realistic picture of the way things really are. Next. I'd say start building a data culture. You got to do that. Prioritizing data literacy, making it a thing that's the norm rather than the exception. See, that's both for yourself as the leader, setting the example, okay, the top down, and for the rest of the team, from the bottom up. You know, they also gain the understanding of the importance of data, uh, getting into data analysis, data wrangling, data visualization, data storytelling, and even data governance. You can't leave that out. Third, I'd say go ahead and beef up that talent pool. You know, get 
folks with those data skills into the key positions throughout your organization. These people that are going to not only reinforce that data culture that you're developing from top to bottom, but also give the other team members from the bottom up the support they need along the way. Lastly, I'd say strengthen those skill sets by supplying adequate educational opportunities for your team. Again, top down and bottom up at the same time. It needs to be a continuous cycle. Because at the same time that you're honing the existing skills, you are now developing additional skills that you didn't even know you needed or even that you had when you got started in this whole process. So yeah, make sure you get those things out. And then as you get to the point where they're data literate and data is indeed driving your decisions, you learn to, as I say, the five L's of, um, <laughs> of data-driven decision-making. Look, see what you got, link, put it together, listen, gotta know what the data's saying, leverage, use it in other, ca in other categories, and learn. It's repeatable, you learn from it, you move on, and you get things done. Look, link, listen, leverage, and learn. That's my two cents, and I'll be quiet now. Thank you, I've got one cent, about half of that. One is um, data literacy shouldn't start with training on tools. It should start with um, educating people on the possibilities of data, its role as an economic asset, its role as a fifth factor of production, you know, then start to get into the nuts and bolts of, of understanding data, what it means, where it is, how to get access to it, what you should and shouldn't do with it, um, and so forth, and, and make data literacy part of change management and, and tie it ideally to an actual business initiative, not just some enterprise um, wide kind of kind of culture change that's dif very difficult to to enact. Um, as far as one piece of advice, I would just say you know don't talk about data as an asset. You know go beyond that to actually treat it like an asset, um, monetizing it, managing it, measuring it with the same discipline as as other assets, and then um, you're in good shape. But it starts with um, that kind of literacy where where people fully understand data's role as a as an asset in today's information age or, or digital economy. If I can do a build on what Doug said, because I did find it interesting. I went from a, a CDO role that was in the business reporting to the CEO into a COO role. Um, and it was quite interesting because I began to realize actually finance and CEOs and COOs are thinking about data as the numbers that help them run the business. And that's data. Yet as soon as we go into other things, it's like, that's not data. It's like, but it is. And so you understand the value of the number in a spreadsheet that tells you if the margin and the revenue and things like that, or HR is looking at the number of people and salaries, but then you look at all the things we do. And again, my, my career kind of from Equifax went into master data management and, and around the single view of customer, single view of product, single view of entity. And there's so much debate around <laughs> all of that, but I think data fuels all of our companies and it's reframing the fact that everyone is a data professional. There's just some of us who understand when you put it into stuff and what you do with it, it, it makes something new. So to Doug's point, there's an economic value on the other side. And so it's just kind of opening it up a bit more and saying, we're all running on data. Just maybe before it was just numbers. And now there's some words with some numbers that you need to look at together. So hopefully that, I love that it brought a smile to some of my, um, you know, teammates faces here on the, uh, Definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I think you guys are, I think you guys are nudging towards critical thinking. You know, it's a very balanced view. Let's be practical. 
So my advice for leaders is you ask these questions. What does the data tell us? What data are we missing? And then I'm going to go one step back from Joe. I don't want to be data led. I want to be data informed because we, we, we mustn't go down the totally positivist route. Right? We must say we, we're humans. We've got other senses as well. Let's pay attention to that. But let's use the data. Let's not ignore the data. Let's bring that into the, to the mix. So what, what's the data telling us? What data are we missing? And that, that kind of broadens it out. Fabulous, thank you. Diana? I would just add that you can tie data literacy to incentive structures. So when you're onboarding employees, data literacy should be a component of that onboarding. It should be part of your professional development. It should be rewarded in the organization. And when you're looking bottom-up um, tactics for inculcating data ethics, this is one of the best ways is if you tie it your Great, thank you. That's super practical, absolutely. And um, closing with you, Mariah, please. Yeah, so I think a lot of good points there as well. So I look at it, uh, education is a very important aspect of it, starting with onboarding employees or even the existing employees on the data governance, data policies and all that, uh, and also the how to use the data and so on. So the education is a bigger component. And also the ownership is another aspect of it, right? Uh, right, we should have a right ownership on the right people to do the right things. And the accountability comes into play with that uh, to make it practically feasible and possible to do the things, right? That's important. And also, uh, rather than uh, speculative and you know uh, hum human-centric decisions, rather I would We'll have more data-driven decisions. Use the data, leverage the data to make the decisions, uh, derive the metrics whatsoever in that ecosystem. Uh, so in closing, obviously, um, the, the data education is very, very important uh, within the organization. And if you're working with third-party customers or B2B models and B2C models, and the education around that ecosystem is very critical to be successful. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I can't believe that time's just flown by. You've all had such um, insightful um, contributions to make to the discussion. Um, I just wish we had more time to unpack it all a bit more. But from your various views on, on um, the data imperative, as we've discussed it today, I think um, we've all learned an incredible amount. So thank you so much for all of your time to Joe, to Mariah, to Lauren, Diana, Doug and Russ. Thank you again for joining us for this studio today.